Welcome to the... Oof, I'm way off again. Too hot? Yeah. Mm. And I don't know how to cool down. Welcome. Climate change, you're going to be hot until you eventually die of heat death. Get stoked. <laughs> Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or in one of our loved radio syndicate partners or on the Green Majority podcast. I am David Hostetter with Stefan Christian Irwin Hostetter and Lauren Elizabeth Corlator. Today we are going to talk about a new standoff in northern BC between the Wet'suwet'en and the Coastal Gaslink workers and the RCMP, the new Green Party leader, Annami Paul. And then uh, Stefan is going to interview... I have two interviews. two interviews. Uh, first with Barnaby Geis, the Director of Programs from the Center for Social Innovation, talking about a upcoming uh, demo night where you can see 16 different uh, types of clean tech. Okay. Uh, and then the longer interview, and one of, my, one of the interviews I learned the most during from Alex Tavasoli, who talks about uh, carbon capture and storage and also the ethics and engineering. It's a great conversation. I learned at least seven things. Cool. All right. So first, we will say that another standoff between the Wet'suwet'en and Coastal Gaslink uh, has begun near the headwaters of the Wet'zinkwa, or Maurice River, as a handful of Wet'suwet'en members, allies, and youth have begun occupying the part of the land that part of the land in an effort to prevent coastal gas link from drilling underneath the river and threatening the waters the community relies upon. On the 13th of October 2020, coastal gas link workers confronted Wet'suwet'en women who were holding a ceremony for the hunting season that is being disrupted by the destructive pipeline construction, with the workers eventually calling in the RCMP. One of the workers reminded the women about the court injunction that gave the company the lawful right to build there, and the women reminded the workers and the RCMP of the eviction notice that was uh, ha- that was handed them by Wet'suwet'en Chief Wass, who holds traditional authority over the territory that the pipeline is invading. In a video posted on the 5th of October by the Gidimdan Access Point, spokesperson Slato stated, quote, we're preparing for a ceremony right now because our headwaters of our sacred river Wadzinqua are at risk of being drilled underneath for the coastal gas link pipeline. This is the headwaters of all the river systems that go down to the coast. This is the sacred headwaters where our people have come to hunt to fish, where the salmon come to spawn that feed all of our people. It's so important because it's one of the last places where you can drink water right out of the river. It provides absolutely everything that we need to live. We cannot afford to lose that ability right now, in this time in our history, when the climate crisis is changing everything so dramatically. We have to protect ourselves. We have to protect what we have at all cost. A Wet'suwet'en legal challenge, pointing out that Coastal GasLink has a history of breaking the law, from environmental noncompliance to destroying Wet'suwet'en cultural heritage, and that the kinds of workers' camps that will be going up often lead to the deaths and disappearances of indigenous women and girls, was heard by the highest BC court on the 1st of October and is asking the court to postpone the pipeline construction for five years. Back in September, over 200 Facebook users who supported the defunding of the Coastal Gas Link uh, Liquid Natural Gas Pipeline were mysteriously reprimanded and suspended by Facebook for sharing info about an online rally. Facebook has since said that it was a mistake, but it's not known who filed the complaint that flagged the accounts. 
Chief Wass said in a video from September regarding a smokehouse in the area that was visited without notice by heavily armed RCMP, quote, This land was very active by our ancestors. It's just recently that we're revitalizing it. We're restoring our identity out here. A message from the Ginnemdan checkpoint released on the 13th of October reads, quote, Coastal Gaslink has called the RCMP to try to remove Wet'suwet'en community members and indigenous youth as they hold a ceremony at a proposed drill site for Coastal Gaslink's pipeline. Coastal Gaslink has been evicted from our territories by the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs who have full jurisdiction over Wet'suwet'en lands. As CGL continues to trespass, we will do everything in our power to protect our waters and uphold our laws. We will not let CGL break our Wet'suwet'en laws and drill under the headwaters of the Wazinqua River, which nourishes all of Wet'suwet'en territory. The standoff is ongoing. We call for solidarity actions from coast to coast. Take action where you stand or come stand with us on the Yinta. So something I think is important to remember was that the agreement between the Hereditary Chiefs and the Liberal government back in February, that I think in terms of media interest was sort of told as the ending of the story, did not in any way address the central concern of this pipeline. It, it was The agreement was to move forward with some understanding of that the hereditary chiefs actually had um, jurisdiction over the land. And it was to sort of move forward that conversation, which had been sort of held back for years after, you know, after the, the, the court decision that's found that. But through all of this, you know, uh, CGL has just continued to build. You know, so while attention has sort of moved away, the central issue has remained unchanged. And I think in some ways, this is, you know, the power of the colonial project, which is that the default is to further suppression. You know, every time anyone stops paying attention to all these things, what continues is, you know, is the loss of land, is the destruction of land, is the further further enforcement of the of the capitalist demands on this land. And so... I know to me that becomes important in part not only for this particular case, but to remember in in all of these cases when when we stop paying attention, or and I say we as the collective sort of you know so-called Canadians, the enforcement and the uh, subjugation does not stop. It, it, it most often that is when it is able to continue and continue much more quickly because of the fact that that attention is no longer there. It is only attention that helps. And and intention and, and, and actual direct action in the in the case of, you know, of this issue, is the only thing that has really successfully actually put any type of pressure on the on the governments to to even scale back in some ways the level of which that their sort of the colonial project will continue. Yeah, that's that's a very very good point um, that you've made. Uh, something that I was thinking about when I was listening to David just then when I was reading about this because um, this just happened uh, yesterday. Well, it's been happening for months and years, but but this specific sort of dispute specifically happened yesterday. But it's a it's a good reminder for us to always question who it is that the RCMP and that our police forces exist to protect, and and what purpose they exist for in the first place. Because um, again, this is just a, what's happening in Wet'suwet'en and what's happening um, in McMaugi and what we refer to as Nova Scotia, generally speaking, um, just really sort of throws into relief that 
the RCMP does primarily exist to uphold white supremacist colonial forces. Um, and that goes doubly so when there are oil and gas companies or large corporations, because in, in, in my mind, it would be, and this isn't an attack on anybody who, who is a police officer who works for a force like that, but it must be so weird to have to so quickly and eagerly and emphatically respond to calls to action from Coastal GasLink or from an oil and gas company and have to consistently use your force against um, indigenous peoples and against just like regular everyday folk. Um, because what we see time and time again is that the RCMP exists not to protect everyday people, not to protect indigenous people, but to protect the, um, I wouldn't say rights because they don't have rights, but the claims that oil and gas corporations and larger companies have in general and sort of the settler colonial state. So that's just something I was thinking about while this was happening. Um, and then I would also just want to remind listeners that like this is happening in Wet'suwet'en on land that please someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe I am on. It's like, it's unceded, unsurrendered land that has no treaty because it has never needed a treaty because it has always been undisputedly indigenous territory. So the fact that we do continuously have coastal gas link going in and enforcing these injunctions and the RCMP going in and enforcing these injunctions on behalf of coastal gas link and the Canadian state and the, uh, the provincial government of BC is an attack on the rights and sovereignty of the Wet'suwet'en people in land that has been undisputedly theirs for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and I think that's sort of an important context for us to put things in and remember that like we, we talk a big game in Canada about a nation-to-nation relationship, and this is a really, really good example of us going back on that promise in a really, really blatant way. Yeah, I guess just before we move on, I just would want to remind listeners that while this is happening in Wet'suwet'en, like I said, similar similar uh, cases, similar things are happening in um McMoggy or in, in Nova Scotia, the sort of ongoing dispute um, amongst fisher folk is happening. And recently it has gotten really violent as well. Uh, there was a case, again, I believe just last night or maybe 48 hours ago, where Mi'kmaq fisher folk were surrounded by something like 200 uh, settler white supremacist folks who destroyed their catch, poisoned their lobster lit their car on fire. And in some cases I've read either the RCMP failed to respond for upwards of two hours. And in some cases I've read the RCMP were there and stood by and did nothing. So, so again, what we're seeing, we're seeing these sort of patterns mirrored on, on both coasts. If people are looking for ways to support the Wet'suwet'en, support the Mi'kma'ki or support any uh, number of the ongoing um, sort of indigenous led uh, standoffs that are happening right now across uh, Turtle Island. You can check out our Instagram. Uh, we have some stories saved there with some really good resources put together by other organizations and other individuals. So um, we'll continue to try to compile resources there for people who are looking to support. So the Green Party of Canada elected a new federal leader at the beginning of the month to replace Elizabeth May, who had been the leader for 13 years before resigning in 2019. The new leader is Annamie Paul, a Torontonian who has now become the first black person to lead a major Canadian federal party, and also the first Jewish woman to do so, having converted to her husband's faith back in 2000. Paul said in a speech on the 5th of October, quote, 
What is a life worth? What are we willing to do to protect our friends, our neighbors, and our community? What are the social policies that we need in order to do that? And how are we going to make sure that when this scourge, meaning COVID-19, is over, and we are more resilient, that we are more resilient, and that the next time it hits, and there will be, and we will be here again, that we can be more resilient and that we can protect every single person in Canada. She said there were two main problems we face, the lack of a proper social safety net and the climate emergency. She advocated for long-term care, care, universal pharmacare, guaranteed livable income, and an accelerated transition toward a green economy, quote, as soon as we're able to do so. She argued that the other parties, when it comes to climate, are intellectually exhausted. Paul is now looking to become an MP for Toronto Centre, with a by-election scheduled for the 26th of October to replace the Liberal Bill Morneau, who recently resigned. The Greens want the NDP to return the favour of not running a candidate against their federal leader in the by-election, as the Greens chose not to run anyone against Jagmeet Singh last year in Burnaby South. Enemy Paul's website lists some central policies that include a national ban on fracking, environmental protections in mining, land protection and nature conservation, dismantling systemic racism in policing, investing in health care, reducing health risks in indigenous communities, aka possibly being less systemically genocidal in a few limited ways, and protecting asylum seekers. Yeah. So this is obviously a historic victory and a very welcome change from the never-ending line of white dudes who've decided they should be the ones to run a country that is increasingly diverse. And you know, while I'm definitely wary of the Green Party, the platform that was sort of put forward that Dave mentioned above uh, is quite aligned with what civil society has been calling for in terms of a Green New Deal. Now... I, what I hope the Green Party understands uh, and will sort of take to heart is the fact that in this leadership connect election, the eco-socialists got 45% of the vote. And so I sincerely hope that what they try to do is not what I think historically the Green Party has done, which is tacked towards the center to try to peel off votes from, say, the liberals or ND, uh, liberals specifically, really, let's be real here, or maybe even conservatives who still fall under the conservationist kind of uh, oddly care about nature ethic, but realize that there's true, true galvanizing interest in an eco-socialist kind of move, given that in their own party, you know, 45% of the vote went towards each eco-socialist candidates by the end of this. And so I hope that this is seen as a moment uh, to, to advance that kind of thing rather than this sort of constant tack towards the center to try to seem like a, I don't know, like a more legitimate, I'm putting legitimate in quotes, party. Yeah, I'm really curious. I don't myself know where exactly anime sort of falls on that spectrum of like eco-socialist to like business-minded sort of market mechanisms um, Green Party voter. Um, I, I know she's definitely not an eco-socialist, but I don't know exactly how far she falls on the other side of the spectrum. So I'm curious to see what sort of policy points and platforms she brings forward and what where her emphasis lies. I'm also very aware of the fact that at least under Elizabeth May, there was a lot of emphasis that the Green Party leader is not a is not a typical Canadian party leader, that the Green Party leader acts as more of a spokesperson and that every MP has the autonomy to vote as they see fit. Um, but I am sort of, I'm, I'm curious to see what kind of culture I guess she brings to the party then. Um, because I, I'm not very familiar with her. Also, of course, the question kind of looming right now is where will her riding go when that vote happens in, in a week or something like that? It's, it's, it's not looking all that great. 
for Annamie. Uh, it's, it's people are fairly confident that, that the Toronto Centre riding in which she's running will go Liberal. Um, and then at that point, that brings up the question, okay, what are the next steps for her? Does she remain a party without a seat? Um, as, or does she remain a party leader without a seat as Elizabeth May was for quite some time before her election in 2011? Or do they move her to a potentially more sympathetic riding potentially out west, maybe even out east where the Green Party has had a bit of a has had a bit of a hold as well. Um, so a lot of questions still remaining when it comes to anime. But uh, she's obviously incredibly competent, incredibly intelligent, Princeton educated. So so they have a good person at the helm in terms of competence and ability to lead. We'll just we'll see where she takes them. My, my bet, Guelph. Astute. We are here with a special segment with Barnaby Geis, the Director of Programs at the Center for Social Innovation, which is leading Climate Ventures. And the Climate Ventures space is also launching recruitment for its second round of the Earth Tech program this month. And so we're here to talk about that and in the types of ventures that are involved. So welcome, Barnaby. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So the first question, very simply, is what is Earth Tech? Sure. So I'll tell you a bit about Climate Ventures as well as a starting point. So Climate Ventures is our incubator base at the Center for Social Innovation, and it's a place for anybody who's working on climate or the environment to come. Well, before COVID, it was work in the space and get to meet other entrepreneurs face to face. Uh, but now more so online and also across the country. So uh, people working on the environment or climate can connect with one another, they get support from our advisors. We have about 48 uh, expert level, executive level advisors now that, that volunteer at the space. And we run programs such as accelerators, challenges, demo nights, uh, all sorts of things basically designed to connect the entrepreneurs to the people and the resources and the knowledge that they need to accelerate their success and amplify their impact. And so EarthTech is one of our accelerators. Uh, we've been running clean tech programs and climate programs for a few years now. But EarthTech is specifically for climate and water tech entrepreneurs. So clean tech entrepreneurs that are working on issues related to water, fresh water, and to the climate, whether it's mitigation, adaptation, or awareness. And so we're just wrapping up our first cohort. We've had 16 amazing clean tech entrepreneurs early stage who have come in, uh, so they're about seed or pre-seed, and they've been able to raise money, get more customers, navigate the challenges of COVID, and continue to grow. And so right now we've got the second cohort that we're recruiting for, as well as Demo Night, which is uh, a night on October 28th, where people will get to see these 16 entrepreneurs pitch live to the audience. Anybody can come and, and watch. And then the audience will actually get to vote live at the online events to decide who of the 16 uh, walks away with uh, $10,000 and some other awards. So let's, let, let's briefly then discuss what kind of these solutions are there. Because, you know, the, I feel like clean tech so often ends up being such a broad brush to paint for, you know, such a, for such a diverse industry. So you can give you a couple examples of the types of organizations that, that are involved. Sure. And you're absolutely right. There's just so much diversity under the clean tech umbrella. And what's special about climate ventures and about earth tech is that we work with both for-profits and non-profit social enterprises. So non-profits that have a revenue model and that are utilizing clean tech or working on climate solutions. 
So specifically in the first cohort of EarthTech, uh, we had Flash Forest was one of our companies. So they're a Canadian drone reforestation company. They have these drones that they've created these pods and modified the drones to actually shoot them from the air and be able to plant trees uh, rapidly in really remote places. So they uh, you know, have made tons of progress over the seven months that we've been together. Uh, Just Vertical is another one that's a retail-facing one, so people can actually go on their website and buy their, their products. And they create these um, hydroponic garden systems that are sleek and sustainable and can help people grow food right in their house all year round. And then to give you an example of a nonprofit, we have Water Rangers, which uh, has built these tools to empower anybody to learn about and test and, and act really to protect our fresh water. So one of the big challenges in Canada is we have a lot of fresh water, more than any other country, but we don't know much about what's going on with that water. So this is basically empowering people with these test kits to get some of that data, crowdsource that data, and then be able to transform the way that we steward our water. Uh, a couple other examples, uh, just to illustrate how diverse they are. There's Rainstick uh, Shower, which is, a again, a, a retail-facing product that is a recirculating shower that saves about 80% water and 80% energy, but still feels like a high-pressure shower. So you can just imagine the amount of places in the world that are facing water scarcity where something like this would be super useful, if not critical. And then uh, lastly, CERT is a carbon tech company that converts CO2 into chemical fuels and feedstocks using just water and electricity. And they've been uh, finalists, uh, and they are currently finalists in the Carbon X Prize. Yeah, it's funny, we'll be talking to another another business that works in that sort of carbon usage at, at the end of the show with, uh, with Solistra later on. But obviously your work has centered around, you know, being the sort of support for these organizations. And so I'm curious if you have any insights in the ways in which society can be better supporting these ventures, you know, because of the fact that we constantly hear of the importance of supporting clean tech or support or, or green growth or, you know, all these sort of things, but that that kind of terminology doesn't again actually give anyone sort of direction. Um, so mm -hmm. how could we be helping more or better? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And we were talking also about the kind of diversity of, of clean tech. You know, there's also this uh, diverse range of stages. And so just to be clear for your audience, the stage that we're talking about in these programs is really early stage. So they're at the discovery validation efficiency stages. So, you know, they're, they're not your echo bee in these, these large companies. They have the potential to, to get there one day. But we're really helping them at those initial difficult stages where they're trying to validate their technology, get investment. And so to give you an idea, the 16 clean tech startups that we've worked with just over the course of the program earned and raised about $4 million. They supported 76 full-time jobs. They had 263 industry um, partnerships or, or, or customers. They established 116 partnerships and they ran 47 pilots. So they've been very busy over seven months. Some of those are retail facing. Some of them are working with large industrial partners. And overall, the ventures at Climate Ventures have earned and raised about $32 million during our climate programs and supported 376 jobs. So small but mighty and on their way to grow. And so to your question about how uh, we can help them grow. So for those that have retail products, being able to, to identify them and, and uh, prefer those products is really helpful to those companies uh, at all stages, just to, you know, every time that we make a purchase, we're voting with our dollars. 
So some platforms that are useful, like the Green Living Show or Buy uh, Social, Buy Good, Feel Good is another one. So these sites that kind of aggregate these companies that are, um, you know, living the values that that all companies, frankly, should be uh, kind of adopting at this point. So helping them through your purchases. But ultimately, a lot of what we're doing here is there's it's clean tech companies that are working at a large scale. And so the best ways to mobilize for climate action, enabling policy and voting the right people in policy, it's it's just such a big part of it. Right. And it's such a big change when government different governments come in. Uh, you know, the clean tech sector was being so supported under the previous provincial government in Ontario. And it's been such a big change since then. Uh, interestingly, Ford, the Ford government uh, recently uh, partnered up with the feds for supporting the Ford plant in Oakville to actually produce electric vehicles. So that's encouraging. You know, we, we can work with any government, but some governments get it, get the urgency of the climate crisis and the policy tools available to them more than others. So being engaged in that way is uh, really important. You know, a lot of these companies just cannot grow or cannot grow fast enough without an enabling policy uh, environment. And those things can be anything like zero emissions vehicle standards, incentives for clean energy and electric vehicles, uh, government procurement of clean tech, flow, flow through shares, and other mechanisms that help to encourage investment and adoption of clean tech. So obviously with, with all of that happening, um, it, it, sometimes it can get sort of, you, you can get sort of lost in the numbers. And so I'm wondering if you can tell me just like a, a short story of one of your favorite stories of, the, of one venture, like a, like a, any sort of little anecdote that helps sort of personalize it a little bit. Mm, that is a good question. Uh, I almost feel like taking a, you know, a cop out answer. Like a, I love them all. And they, <laughs> they all have amazing stories, but you know, th that is the truth. When I, when I see all of these entrepreneurs, the amount of themselves that they're, they are investing in creating this solution uh, literally all of them just have incredible stories. Um, from this particular cohort, you know, Flash Forest stands out um, just because I saw them just run around so much from like the office space where they were taking meetings and and um, talking to potential investors and then running back to the lab where they're testing out these pods and then going into the field where they're shooting these pods from the sky, from these drones, and then using the data to map out you know, what's starting to grow, what not. Uh, they just really embodied this kind of entrepreneurial grit and energy that was uh, amazing to see. And uh, luckily, we're uh, an accelerator that works with SDTC, and so we were able to nominate, nominate them, and they were able to get a $100,000 grant through SDTC as well to help uh, develop uh, their, their pods. So. Uh, yeah, they, they embody that. But again, really every entrepreneur we worked with, we did not have a single entrepreneur or enterprise fail during this first cohort. They all grew despite all the challenges of COVID. So the, the amount of tenacity that it took for them to you know, navigate just the world of being an entrepreneur and then the world of being an entrepreneur during the pandemic uh, has been very inspiring for me to be a part of. Uh, that's that's very fair. And so, uh, so if folks want to get involved or to learn more, what can they do? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for letting me do the plug. So, if they would like to uh, come to Demo Night, which please, it would it'd be amazing. I mean, I think we're living in such challenging times sometimes that it's really easy to get demoralized. 
And uh, let me tell you, to see these people present what they've been working on, the progress they've made, is a great way to feel better and, uh, and also something that allows you to talk about climate solutions and, uh, and help people see that these solutions are out there and that we can totally address the climate crisis. So if you go to our website, which is climateventures.org, and you just scroll down on the landing page, you'll see a news and events section. And then there, there's an event uh, link to the demo night, which is on October 28th. And you can register through Eventbrite. And uh, please help us share that far and wide. And anybody and everybody is welcome. And then if you are a clean tech entrepreneur or you know a clean tech entrepreneur and they may be a good fit, they're in the early stage uh, to, to get supported through our EarthTech Accelerator, you can go to climateventures.org slash earthtech to get all the details and apply. Amazing. Thank you so much, Barnaby Geis, Director of Programs at Center for Social Innovation. Good luck on the demo night. We will, I'll share it uh, on the show post as well and uh, look forward to having you back. Uh, we are here with a special interview with Alex Cavasoli, the co-founder of Solistra, which I'm going to say is a carbon capture and storage company, but you will certainly correct me right away. Uh, welcome, Alex. Hi, Stefan. So let's jump right into that correction. What does Solistra do? Right. So Solistra is a carbon utilization company. We take an input of carbon dioxide and methane gas, the two most abundant greenhouse gases, and we use a solar activated uh, nanomaterial to convert them into an intermediate gas mixture called synthesis gas, which is uh, nothing anyone really needs to know about. Um, but you use it as a precursor to make over 100,000 different commodity chemicals that are traditionally made from petrochemicals. So what this gives us is an opportunity to, I guess, replace the base of that supply chain with, that are fossil fuel based with waste gases like greenhouse gases or uh, landfill gas, biogas from organic waste, what have you. So, yeah. Cool. So, so it'd be safe to say that you aren't doing the capturing part, but you're doing more of the storaging part in that you're taking the carbon that would normally be out in the atmosphere and using it for other materials. Yes, yeah. So we would have to partner with somebody that captured uh, carbon dioxide or methane, either from the air or from a concentrated source. Yeah. Right. And so, like, obviously, it's a burgeoning industry. People use carbon capture and storage to mean so much. And what you are doing is creating a market for stored carbon. Yeah. So if I was a carbon capture company, Solistra would be an offtake partner for them. So we would you're right, be creating the market for using captured carbon dioxide, but that doesn't necessarily propagate down to the existence of a market for the products that are made out of that carbon dioxide. And so since a lot of um, these technologies are newer and also um, the existence of sustainable products at a slight premium uh, on the market exists, it might still be a bit of a transition until the market for carbon-based products is uh, fully fledged, I guess. Right. Mm -hmm. Can you give a sort of overview of, of what the cur current scenario of carbon capture and storage is? Yeah, so CCUS, like carbon capture utilization and storage technologies um, sort of run the whole gamut. You have carbon capture, which is basically how do we capture the carbon dioxide from a flue gas stream after we burned it or directly out of the air? And those aren't necessarily new 
technologies, um, for example, industrial, industrial oxygen that we use in hospitals and things like that has been pulled directly out of the air for decades. And so you have the capture part, and then there's the question of what you do with it once you've captured it. And there are basically two options. One is bottle the carbon dioxide and turn it into something else, or um, you mineralize it, which can then be turned into another thing. The existence of the technology, in my opinion, is a little bit independent from how they should be deployed and what the driver for their existence will be, sort of from three different perspectives. So I think they're the success of CCUS technologies depends a lot on how, I guess, the whole chemicals industry and also our public policy decisions change um, our existing relationships with how we have connected with our natural resources and used our natural resources um, over the last, I guess, I want to say five or 600 years. Um, and so there's a question of whether CCUS technology can completely replace fossil fuels. And I think whether the, the question of whether we can move away from using fossil fuels at all for anything is still quite an open one. And um, I think there are a lot of historical examples that can maybe lead, lead us to answers as to why certain approaches haven't worked in the past. So for example, one that I like to uh, mention is um, people started, people first started complaining about using coal in the Elizabethan era. So in yeah, the late 1500s, early 1600s, there was a tree shortage in the UK and uh, people had to burn coal in their houses for heat and only rich people got like nice smelling wood basically. And um, it wasn't very long before people started to complain that the air was dirty, the sulfur was making them sick that type of thing. And here we are in 2020, still sort of arguing about coal, the same issues, the air quality. Um, we've managed to make some advances, but not to like expunge it entirely. Right. It's interesting even talking to you, I'm realizing that there are even some even micro distinctions that are sort of combined in our, in, in those of us who are laymen, I would identify as such, would consider, which is that like, even the difference between like most CCS, my understanding right now, comes at a concept of either, you know, as you said, be at the end of something that is causing, creating carbon or methane, and, and not actually pulling it from the sky. Like, the, like when we, people hear about carbon capture storage, one of the visions, at least I have, are these massive fans that exist out there that for like $200 a ton can pull carbon from the sky, which is obviously, if you were going to try to get to a carbon negative society, that theoretically what you're imagining, not CCS as it is now, which is really looking at reducing emissions from current sources. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's a really good point. And I think that goes into the different pathways that CCUS can find use industrially. And one of those would be in a private market-driven model where they make products and out of CO2 and you sell those to people who buy products made out of CO2. The other part of that is whether these technologies have any sort of implementation from a public health perspective. And I mean that in, a, in sort of an analogous way to the way we deal with wastewater treatment nowadays. So for example, is there a world in the future where our atmospheric emissions or atmospheric carbon dioxide concentration is so high that 
we end up publicly cleaning our air using these massive direct air capture systems the same way we publicly clean our water. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. So one question I, I now sort of have is, obviously, given these two separate places and, and given some of the criticism and concern around carbon capture and storage definitely comes from the fact that the oil industry uses it as an example as to why they can continue. It's like, no, we can do this, but even cleaner by, by capturing the, the, the oil, that, the, the carbon that comes out of our really, again, only actual creation of it and refining of it, that no one's putting a CCS machine on a, on a, on a vehicle right now. I was, can't imagine they are too much. I actually applied for a grant to do that, but I was really? rejected. Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, well, grantees, give Alex a grant for that. But what I was thinking of actually was, where do you see it being most important, right? Because like there, we often think about, or I often think about the difference between like sticky emissions, which is basically you know, the, the emissions that are much, much harder as a society to get rid of. Like right now, it seems very simple to me that we can just replace most fossil fuel burning in our energy grid with something else. You know, we have many other options. There's no good argument for, you know, for coal to be on our energy grid right now, no matter how much TCS they do put in place. However, there are other things that are much, much more difficult in ways to reduce carbon. So where do you see this technology being the most important uh, dealing with that sort of that concept? Yeah, for sure. I definitely agree with you. There is no reason nowadays to light something on fire for electricity. Just there's no reason to do it. Um, and that is the vast majority of uh, greenhouse gas emissions that result from fossil fuel. The whole fossil fuel industry is, are those combustive fuel uses. Um, if we, so hypothetically, if you got rid of that and you had all electric cars and all your electricity came from not burning things, um, then what you would be left with are the like everyday products that um, we have, like the surfactants in your shampoos and things like that that are made from petrochemicals and really the part of that story that I get stuck on when I try to think about whether we can just totally get rid of fossil fuels in general is the question of what would we replace those products with so for example if you go on like a sort of shallow example is like if you go on to like a green beauty blog and they're like hey stop using like vaseline use coconut oil instead like how many trees would we need to replace all of the vaseline that's sold every year like that's yeah quite a lot and you know since the the idea of going back to using natural i'm using air quotes on a audio show but natural <laughs> products like that for like these everyday products is a little bit scary to me again as i previously mentioned because we already ran out of trees several hundred years ago when uh, notre dame burned a couple years ago there are no more oak trees to repair it so uh going back to a model like that doesn't make a lot of sense to me and i'm a little bit afraid that our that the i guess global population and the um, standard of living that the Western, most of the Western world is used to, and we have so we sort of expect the developing world to grow into. I'm afraid that we can't go back without using sort of these, even though we pull oil out of the ground, uh, like artificial feedstock products. So that I guess that fits into why the oil industry uses it as an excuse um, as to why they can carry on. But the idea. An argument against that would be like using technologies like Solistras instead, using like greenhouse gas uh, feedstocks to make 
these oil-based products instead. But I would very much want to see the numbers on whether there is enough waste material for us to use to replace the amount of carbon that we need. That's a, that's a number that I eventually, when I have some time in my life, I would like to dig up and calculate. Cool. And so in this, in this world where all the simplest places where we're burning stuff is, is on, where is, your, where is this technology being used? Where are we pulling this from? For these carbon-based products to be manufactured? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So they can come from a number of sources. So really most of the waste that we have is organic waste. So if you take um, sewage, uh, you could use sewage, you could use plastic waste, we could come up with like an actual way to recycle our plastic. It can come from agricultural wastes, it can come from crop waste, biogas, landfill gas, yeah, things like that. Um, I even, I met someone recently who seeks out abandoned coal mines and that leak methane, and he captures the methane from the coal mine and puts it into the natural gas grid and that gets that person carbon credits <laughs> yeah. because technically they cleaned up like an emission source right um yeah so i think there there, there are a lot of sources the, the issue being that they're distributed Right, right. So the leg up that the fossil fuels industry has currently is that their supply chain and economies of scale are just so ingrained and they have been put into place over 100 years. And so fi fixing that in the next 10 or 15 years is, is difficult. Right, it will be sure. difficult to beat. Could you, so again, open question, no idea if this is true or not. Could it be used in places like, like to me, I've, what I've always heard is some of the hardest places is like cement. Uh, in steel, that these are things that you need to burn at such a high heat. I, like earlier this summer, there was a whole thing about how they finally had a solar array manage to heat something hot enough to allow them to make steel, I think it was. Yeah. And it was this very complicated array to get this. And so people were like, one of the reasons why these two industries remain so carbon intensive is because you just need to heat things, at least steel, mm -hmm. heat things as hot as possible. Could this kind of technology be used there? Yeah, so, yes. Um, so I will say... Um, Heat is not the only thing you need to refine steel. The reason that they put all the iron ore basically into this massive bucket with a bunch of coal and then light it on fire is that you need the heat, but you also need the carbon chemically to react and make carbon steel for our structural processes. So um, there is a world in which um, we can burn, say something like hydrogen instead, or use a solar array to uh, heat the iron ore up to a certain point, and then you can get the carbon from some of the waste sources that we've talked about, the biogas, the landfill gas, yeah, things like that. Um, yeah, steel and cement, um, yeah, that would be, there's a, there's a company called Carbon Cure from Canada that's quite large, yeah, that uh, works on uh, concrete, so. Yeah, they, they actually embed, uh, carbon in their concrete, right? That's sort of their move? Yeah, so con uh, concrete, when it dries, or when you perceive it to dry, it doesn't actually dry. It's like a chemical reaction that takes place. And so I think they, what they did was replace that chemical reaction with one that absorbs carbon dioxide rather than releases it. Right, so switching gears entirely to a thing that we sort of talked about before the show in a conversation that I find uh, fascinating. We've talked about the way that ethics and engineering impacts this. 
So can you sort of explain that concept and then how it relates to sustainability? Yeah, so engineering is a regulated profession in Canada the same way that law and medicine are. And um, really what it's what that regulation is for is to make sure that um, public safety is taken into account when we decide to build things or um, engage in certain projects. Where it comes short, in my opinion, is when it comes to the, I guess, knock-on ramifications of engineering work and also um, where the responsibility lies once that engineering work is finished. So a really good example of that is the like never-ending Grassy Narrows saga in Ontario. So there really needs to be some sort of engineering ethics or environmental cleanup legislation in place that doesn't allow these companies to basically have their engineers say that this will be too expensive to clean up. Like that should come sort of first. Like that saga, I, I can't even remember the names of every engineering company that acquired the last engineering company that was going through that process to, yeah, it just became such a quagmire. And the fact that it's gone on for so long by just only just by passing the buck is really, really uh, frustrating to me. And as well, I think that that also extends internationally in the way engineering ethics deals with projects. So for example, um, if you are doing a project internationally, you're subject to the laws of that nation, not the Canadian nation that the company might be uh, incorporated in. And a lot of the times, if these are natural resource extraction projects, those countries might not necessarily have the infrastructure in place or procedures to regulate some of those activities. And so you end up in a place where there are really successful Canadian engineering companies that operate internationally, but do some sketchy things. And there aren't really mechanisms within the profession to speak out about that in a way that won't immediately ruin your career, frankly. <laughs> and that extends to um, CCUS in a way where if somebody that works for an oil company or pipeline company or something like that is working on a project that's particularly polluting, is there any mechanism by which they can complain about that in a less than whistleblower way? So you should be able to sort of say um, that this isn't right. I think just before we were talking, I was saying that, you know, if I hypothetically worked at Barrick Gold, I should be able to go into the office and have a casual conversation with uh, my colleagues and say, you know, isn't it weird that Human Rights Watch wrote an article about us? Like, we should probably look into this or something like that. But um, uh, those sort of attitudes aren't really uh, accepted. And as well, um, in May of this year, um, the PEO, Professional Engineers Ontario, sorry, uh, released an article talking about how engineering ethics is viewed and how um, it can change. And one of the direct quotes from a PEO lawyer was that um, engineering ethics should not be confused with ethics per se. Um, ethics implies uh, moral deliberation and freedom of choice, which is sort of like a funny thing to say in 2020 when um, we are starting to, I guess, take into account a lot of more social justice metrics uh, within corporate activities, whether it's through like ESG metrics or whatever. And that that extends, I think, into the future of sustainable infrastructure because 
the attitudes within engineering that have allowed us to sort of like shut our eyes and, um, you know, build a refinery or whatever um, are based in a goal structure of the corporation that is sort of going out of style. And so their ethical obligation is to their employer and doing um, good uh, work and not endangering the Canadian public safety. And so, yeah, I think that if we're going to try to be a little bit more flexible with what's possible for us in the future, uh, we might need to rethink that. Yeah. Right. And, and so is there a version of the world where we're able to update these sort of standards in a way that would increase the ability for sustainability? Or would this sort of be more of an overhaul of the whole operation? I think that it could be fixed with enough effort. So I think it's also a like a professional culture type thing. So for example, um, there's this big push in the PEO to by 2030, they want at least 30% of licensed engineers to be women. And to me, like, yeah, there should be more women, but this is not like a construction project we're keeping in scope. Like, why don't we say like, let's go for a hundred percent. Like, <laughs> let's just uh, go crazy. So um, I think that maybe trying to be, I guess, too practical with these things that are more, I guess, subjective and related to more human aspects of life can be left out of um, engineering thought a little bit. Yeah. And so uh, to take sort of one more, maybe step even further back to the, to the more over, overall sort of question, what would your vision be for how we move towards a low carbon economy? So, mm -hmm. you know, with, with your understanding and sort of your background, what's, how do you sort of see the, obviously it needs to come in many different forms and ways. So what's the sort of overarching way that these all plug together? Yeah, well, there's the question of how it gets implemented, right? Um, and I think that there are some good examples from history of how cleaner technologies have come about. One that I like to refer to is um, the alkali industry of the early <laughs> industrial revolution. Um, so one of the biggest um, industries prior to when we needed oil was um, making alkali for soaps and textiles and things like that and um, originally that was made from potash which is a word we know well in Canada and um, that was ash from trees that they burned that they then leached out like sodium and potassium hydroxide from to make soap. They ran out of trees to do that in the 1200s <laughs> so they started using salt from salt mines and things like that. And eventually, when those operations started getting a lot bigger in the late 1700s, um, you ran into the situation where there was an incredible amount of hydrochloric acid being emitted into the air in um, the industrial parts of the world at that time, mostly England, France, Germany. And that created just an insane amount of acid rain and a lot of degradation of the ecosystem uh, surrounding. And so... There were two approaches that they used to clean that up. So one, the first, uh, I guess, modern pollution legislation was the British Alkali Act of the late 1800s, which um, put into place rules that said that these operations had to cut their emissions by 95%. So if we're arguing over a $30, $30 carbon tax, just put that into, put that into account. So that, that, had a big, um, that had a big impact on reducing the emission, the hydrochloric acid emissions right away. But a good contrasting strategy was in France, King Louis XVI 
offered like a cash prize to their National Academy of Sciences for someone that could develop a way to make alkali without uh, emitting hydrochloric acid. And um, that was how we got the chemical company Salve, which is one of the largest chemical companies in the world. Unfortunately, they did not receive their cash prize due to the French Revolution, but that process is still used and we no longer pump hydrochloric acid into the air. So if we look at like the timeline it took to accomplish that, the process that predated the Salve process, the really dirty one, was called the LeBlanc process and it was commercialized in like the late like 1790s sort of. And then the um, British Alkali Act didn't come into account and it didn't come into effect until the late 1800s, like 1860 something. And so if you're looking at like 70 years of this process before they decided to clean it up, that's basically where we are with the petrochemicals industry. And so I think that we can do it. It's about, it's almost exactly the same amount of time that it was back then. So I find that those sort of analogies encouraging, I guess. Right. If only the alkali industry had managed to take over the world and control most of our markets, they could have really held on for a few more years. Exactly. Yeah. The fact that the fossil fuels industry does control all of geopolitics gives them an extra leg up that's not <laughs> technological. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much. I learned so much. Having someone who has this sort of technical knowledge on the show is, on, is so consistently uh, interesting for me. But for now, as we're running out of time, um, is there anything, like, if you have a last thought to share uh, with our listeners, the floor is yours. Yeah, I think um, maybe one last thought is uh, the question, I think the question of whether the responsibility to do all this sort of lies with individual, I guess, resource consumption decisions, or if it is the responsibility of very large organizations to clean up their own acts, I would say unequivocally both. <laughs> I think there are like many bucks that stop with a lot of different people at different scales. So I think everybody needs to do their part. That, that makes no sense. All right. Well, thank you so much, Alex Tavasoli of uh, the co-founder of Solistra and resident expert of engineering. Thank and, you so much. Uh, and we'll have you back on soon and have a wonderful day. Yeah, thanks very much.